and welcome to Stranger Than Fiction, a series of podcasts from Slate and the New America Foundation about the future as seen through the eyes of some of today's best science fiction writers. I'm your host, Tim Wu, and my guest today is Neil Stevenson, award-winning and best-selling author of Snow Crash, Dream D, Cryptmonicon, and many other books. He joins us from Seattle. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hi, Tim. So let's uh, start with a topic you've been talking about uh, here and there, which is uh, doing big stuff. You said that uh, you're worried about uh, our society has lost the capacity to, to do big things. What, what did you mean by that? Well, if you, uh, if you were to take a, a person off the street at the beginning of the 20th century and put him in a time machine and send him ahead to about 1967 and then send them back to their own time to explain everything that they had seen uh, to the, the people they knew, they wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, so, so much had, had changed during that time. The invention of heavier-than-air aircraft, radio, uh, television, computers, uh, nuclear power, uh, quantum mechanics, relativity, all of those things and, and many, many other things came along during that era and just radically transformed um, the, uh, the landscape we live in and, uh, you know, gave good jobs to uh, a lot of people. But if you were to take somebody from 1967 and send them forward to 2012, uh, they wouldn't really see much that was different. Um, and in some ways, they would see things missing. So, you know, they, they're, they're, they would say, well, you know, people still drive around in cars. The cars look a little more uh, smaller and, and more kind of streamlined than ours. Um, but they're still flying around in the same 747s and 737s that we've got now. Uh, SSTs don't exist anymore. Uh, we've lost the ability to, uh, to launch human beings into space, uh, let alone uh, send them to the moon and, and bring them back. And, you know, during the same time, uh, we've seen uh, kind of obvious lapses in the ability of our technologies to give us things that we want. We don't have the energy production uh, systems that we would like to have. And so we get things like Deepwater Horizon and Fukushima, which to me look like failures of, of very old school energy systems. So it just seems to me like there's been a, a, a sudden kind of, um, as if we just kind of hit the wall in terms of introducing new technologies, uh, and I'm, I'm curious as to why that happened. It's funny because people will often say, well, you know, things are moving so fast now. You go to any conference and it's like, in these changing times, things are so fast. And, and I kind of agree with you. Think about the 1920s or 1910, you know, electricity was on the scene. That's a huge change, yeah. radio and so on. Do you think it has something to do with us or is it to do with the science? I mean, there is the possibility that in some of these areas, you kind of start to run up against some of the limits of physics or, or whatever. Maybe we don't have faster airplanes or better airplanes because we hit the limits of, of our engineering ability. Well, it does seem as though we, we uncovered some new physics around then that enabled us to kind of expand very rapidly into some new areas of, of technology. Um, and so that's definitely a uh, possible explanation for this. Um, I should say that I, I don't really have a grand theory as to why this is all happening. Um, and what makes it interesting is kind of the discussion 
that we can get into uh, about possible causes and, and possible remedies. Yeah. I feel like um, what happens is that certain areas, and I think this is kind of what you're getting at, it feels like certain areas get kind of stuck. Like nuclear mm-hmm. reactors are a great example, or um, airplanes. And other areas, obviously, I mean, no one would say our, our cell phones are, I mean, the word yeah. cell phones, 60s. And, and I don't know if you thought about it, but it's interesting to wonder, do you think there's something different about these kind of things that are stuck and the industries which seem to be plowing ahead and getting better? Any pattern you can discern? Well, I mean, clearly a lot has been going on in uh, in anything related to computers uh, and the Internet and and mobile electronics. Uh, and so it would be crazy to claim that uh, the big changes weren't going on in, in those areas. Um, one of my kind of pet theories about this is that uh, when that opened up, um, it just uh, created a, a big sucking sound, to, uh, to paraphrase H. Ross Perot, <laughs> uh, that, that pulled in every single kind of technically-minded uh, inventive geek uh, for the next generation or so, so yeah, uh, you, you know the the people who in a previous generation would have been designing airplanes or something uh, ended up uh, working on apps. I'd also add the financial industry. Um, you know how many PhDs went from trying to I don't know build a better nuclear reactor to trying to build a better uh, arbitrage model or something like that. Is, is that what right. you have an idea in mind? We do have kind of an odd situation now in which. Um, big financial entities will lose um, many billions of dollars on kind of harebrained uh, uh, hedging schemes and, and program trading systems um, uh, and, and don't seem to suffer uh, meaningful consequences, uh, but they're unwilling to, to put equivalent amounts of money towards the, uh, the creation of new stuff. Yeah. Let me turn to a different topic. It's 20 years now since Snow Crash, which was your... A third novel and, and in many ways a breakthrough novel and a lot of people have pointed out that a lot of the stuff you talked about in Snow Crash which was written basically at the very beginning of the internet has kind of happened maybe not completely but in, in certain forms whether it's the mass internet of course uh, the rise of virtual reality uh, worlds to some degree um, and in some of your other books uh, Data Havens things like this and I just wonder what it's like to to sit there and watch these things you wrote about <laughs> come true? Uh, it's it, for me. It's not as interesting as you might think. I mean, I, I think people are are very generous in assessing uh, these things. Uh, I look at it uh, as a, a a case of of me sort of shotgunning a bunch of of crazy ideas uh, into the pages of a book, uh, and then. Um, and watching as maybe one or two of them kind of sort of gets uh, gets developed in the real world. Uh, people uh, notice the ones that sort of come true, and they even will kind of bend things around a little bit in order to make it seem like they came true when maybe they didn't. Uh, and, and they tend to ignore the, the, the missed uh, predictions. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always flattered and, and happy when... Uh, when people try to give me credit um, right. for having predicted things, but uh, I take it with a grain of salt. One of the things I loved in Snow Crash with with the gargoyles; these were the guys who who had all their cyborg stuff hung on the outside of their bodies. Big uh, kind of the geeks of the, of the time. Uh, you know, you look around anywhere in in, 
America and you see people carrying their phones, staring into them. Uh, do you think yeah. we've gone uh, along the path towards gargaldom or? Not yeah, right. except in, instead of it being a few weird people, it's everyone, you know, yeah. as, as you pointed out. Just uh, to make it clear to our listeners, what was your idea of the gargoyle? Who was the gargoyle? Oh, just, just, just somebody who had, who had sort of uh, aggressively adopted every possible way of, of getting information into their, into their head. And so it was kind of permanently living in an augmented reality world and, and patched into the network in, in all sorts of different ways. Um, so that it was sort of basically a living embodiment of, of Google. Yeah, living embodiment of Google. You mean yeah. they're they're just a, a walking, talking Google, and you know it's pretty easy to be that uh, today if you yeah have your Android phone and your search. I mean, yeah, I th- I think the the thing that we keep getting wrong sometimes in in science fiction is is judging scarcity, right? And you know what's going to be scarce and what's going to be plentiful. And in that case, um, I was assuming so. So this is a great example of what I was talking about a minute ago. In the case of missed predictions, um, I assumed back then that the ability to have all that information um, at your fingertips would be a scarce resource, and that it would be concentrated in the hands of these special people who I call gargoyles. Yeah. In the book, but that's not how it turned out. It's it's as plentiful as it could be. Everyone's got it. Uh, everyone's doing it all the time. Yeah, and it reminds me of something I wanted to, to talk about with respect to, to geek culture. I mean, in, in Snow Crash and a lot of your books, there are sort of these distinctive – geeks are kind of like an ethnic group. Mm-hmm. I think in one of your books, a character says, oh, you know, th- those are my people over there. And I can't remember. They're playing uh, – yeah, they're magic they're playing magic. They're yeah. playing a, a card game in a mall. Yeah, and uh, those are my people, and I, I grew up with those people. And I, I personally, I know that feeling. I, I didn't play magic, mm-hmm. but I did play D anD. d So you know, the thing I've been thinking lately is that uh, you know, I was looking at the mainstream movies these days, and it's like you know, like the Avengers, X Men. You know, look at what you said earlier. Everyone's kind of a gargoyle. Geek culture just isn't really marginal anymore. It's sort of a, a mainstream thing. And it's, there's been kind of this, this victory of geek culture. It seems like if you want to be alternative these days, you have to be a kind of a, a rogue. If you want to posit a rogue hero, they have to actually be straight or something. Or <laughs> I don't know what the Neil Stevenson of today would, would write. Have to write yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure either. Some, hopefully there's some, there's some 20-year-old uh, uh, aspiring writer out there who's got that nailed. Yeah. I remember watching Star Wars way back in the day, and they'd have like a, a kind of unidentified random droid in the corner of the screen. And it right. wasn't part of the plot. You know, it wasn't an important droid, but it was like part of some other story that could have been going on. And the whole world was there. You were just seeing some kind of small piece of it. Yeah, it, yeah. it was kind of a dog whistle from, from George Lucas telling you that, hey, this, you know, there's a world here. And, you know, stick with this. Uh, because there's going to be a lot more in this vein. Yeah. So the world-building style of uh, creating um, entertainment, let's say, to me is the is the identifying characteristic of of geek culture, and uh, it it just happens to uh, to dovetail really well with um, t- to put it bluntly with with kind of business models that are sustainable. <laughs> If you're going to do a video game or uh, a, a series of movies, you know, build a, a, a franchise of movies or whatever, um, you don't want just a story. You want a world. Let's get back to this grand unifying theory of geekdom because I, I kind of found it an appealing uh, project. 
So if I understand you correctly, uh, the thing that is definitionally fascinating to a geek is the possibility of alternative universes, but they have to be uh, logically coherent alternative universes. Why is that so interesting? I mean, I, I, I have the same interest a, a, as you do, but I wonder if you've ever speculated just what, what why, why do you think that, that gets geeks going, or, or also, since geek culture is every culture, everyone interested? Well, I think they, that geeks enjoy kind of uh, learning. They enjoy cataloging and organizing information. And um, if you're looking at a uh, a piece of sort of non-geek literature, uh, you, you you don't have that opportunity. You can catalog all of the characters who appear in David Copperfield, and you're you're pretty much done. Um, and the the world that David Copperfield lives in is is pretty much Victorian England, uh, which is a fascinating place. Um, but um, we, we know we, we know everything we're going to know about it. Do you think maybe it has, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. Do you think it has something to do, and this is sort of a slightly prejudicial view of geekdom, but the idea that the alternative universe suggests that maybe things could be better. You know, maybe these things that we find frustrating or we don't like about this universe are, are contingent as opposed to just uh, fixed in place. And, you know, there's a possibility of a world we like better somewhere out there. I guess uh, just in a general spirit of of, of being troublesome, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll point out that there are successful kind of geek uh, uh, alternative universes that aren't so nice. Right. Yeah. The world that we see in uh, in um, George R. R. Martin's uh, Game of Thrones series um, uh, is very well developed and and has you know some fascinating characters and situations but uh, it's uh, it, on the whole it's a, it's a pretty dark place it's true on the other hand if you really want to you can go out and grab a sword and attack people you can do a lot of stuff you can't do around here um i would have to say one of my favorite things about your book is just the the sense of a different world but even within our world the idea that the names of things could just be different and that <laughs> wouldn't change everything. It would just be something we get used to. Um, I'm reminded, I, I was reading Plato's uh, Symposium the other day for some reason, and he has this big passage about how, well, of course, gay men are always more masculine, always more courageous, and um, because they hang out with other men all the time. And uh, <laughs> heterosexual men tend to be weak and timid because they're always in the company of women. They love women. They're pathetic. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> kind of a different way of looking at things. And... Um, you know, history is uh, full of those enormous differences, a lot of which you, you kind of grab. It is, and, and I think that's why historical uh, fiction has always been kind of an interesting place for science fiction and fantasy writers to, to go. Because, and, and it has been the case, certainly, as long as I've been reading science fiction, that um, science fiction writers will very often go back to the past uh, yeah. Either by just writing uh, a, a historical uh, piece occasionally, or um, you know, finding some excuse to bring a historical character back to life in another time. Let me ask you a, a question I've, I've wondered for a long time. Um, in Anathem, there's a central religious debate between. If I get this wrong, forgive me. But basically, people who believe that the there are sort of universal ideals um, that. Uh, exist in a pure form somewhere, and we sort of strive towards them. Mm-hmm. And another group of people who uh, essentially believe that uh, truth is a little more contingent or, or mm-hmm. assumed. 
And I was curious if you were just interested, obviously you're interested in it, but whether you actually at some level have a belief <laughs> if you follow one of those two schools or not. Well, I'd say my kind of knee-jerk instincts are more in the, the former direction, the kind of platonic uh, point, point of view. Um, but it's, um, you know, sort of regardless of, of what I think or whether I think it's interesting, um, it, it has been a, a persistent topic of discussion among kind of thoughtful people for a hell of a long time now. If you ask a mathematician, was three a uh, prime number a billion years ago, most of them are going to say, well, of course it, of course it was. What a ridiculous question. Right. Um, but there's another point of view which says that um, a number can't be prime until human beings come along and, and make up the concept of, of primeness. Now, in your, in your work, people are willing to fight for these ideas as almost like religious ideas. But I, I take it you don't have that same – you're just interested in it. You don't have the same uh, deeper – a dedication to these uh, concepts, Platonism or Platonism or otherwise. The book that you're talking about, Anathem, is is one in which it's sort of possible for for people to actually think about or fight uh, over over things like that. Um, uh, at least within the network of of consents, the the places where the kind of literate, educated people all live. Um, the the vast majority of people in that world don't live in that network. And um, and don't care about that stuff. They're kind of living in the somewhere else, like Snow Crash World or something. We don't really even know. They just kind of come and go. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Well, I'm, I guess I'm trying to get at whether this uh, was indicative of any personal convictions on, on your part. Something you feel powerfully about? Is it just uh, you know just really interesting ideas? I, I guess it's more just that it's that it's really interesting. And you know, as I said, I'm I'm much more of the the point of view that. Uh, that free was a prime number a billion years ago. Right. Um, but it turns out that if if you you know like like Gödel, if you begin to explore these ideas in some detail, it can take you down some kind of interesting philosophical pathways, and and um, it's just uh, wh- whether you come to a really firm conclusion or or not, it's uh, it's interesting stuff to think about. Well, say the least. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, Neil, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's been fun. I've been talking with science fiction writer Neil Stevenson. I'd like to thank our producer, Tori Bosch, our engineer, Chris Wade, and Andres Martinez of the New America Foundation. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers, and I'm Tim Wu. Thanks for listening.